KBTC, a viewer-supported community service of Bates Technical College. From KBTC Public Television Studios in Tacoma, Washington, it's the Northwest Now podcast. Each week, we take a closer look at the people and issues that affect all of us here in Western Washington. So sit back, relax, and join the conversation with your host, Tom Lason. The murder of George Floyd sparked a long, hot summer of racial outrage, but it was also the starting point for a new collective of pastors in Western Washington who saw the need to open up a more nuanced dialogue about race relations and reconciliation. Lonnie Arnold has the vision, and others soon joined in. The Racial Reconciliation Network is the discussion next on Northwest Now. Lonnie Arnold was a police officer for 26 years, but he also worked in the ministry and became a pastor. He's currently at the New Salem Church in Tacoma. So he sits at a unique intersection as law enforcement, a person of color, a faith leader, and now as one of the people trying to bring about peace and reconciliation through dialogue and engagement. Lonnie, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. Uh, great to have you in to talk about really a, a difficult subject, but probably shouldn't be a difficult subject, and we'll get into that in a minute. But first, start me out a little bit with your biography. Who are you, where did you come up, and uh, how'd you find yourself in this role? Okay, thank you. Uh, it, it's a blessing to be here, first of all, and I grew up in Seattle, Washington, born and raised there. Uh, my parents migrated from uh, Arkansas and came up to this area for a better life. Uh, like I said, I was born and raised there, graduated from Cleveland High School, uh, left the area, went to college in Portland, got married while I was down there, came back, uh, got into law enforcement, uh, even though my primary focus was ministry, so that was kind of a unique mix that I mm -hmm. have. And after uh, getting into law enforcement field, one of the things that really dawned on me in that process was there was a lot of overlap between law enforcement and ministry because you're dealing with people when they're in crisis situations a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So that's, that led me into um, uh, just, you know, kind of merging those two in one sense with the overlap. And I've continued on in ministry. I retired from the King County Sheriff's Office after 26 years. I retired as a police sergeant. And then from there, uh, continued on in ministry and this whole racial reconciliation network that I'm leading now uh, really came about uh, in response to uh, the George Floyd killing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that's so interesting about you is the fact that you really sit at the intersection of a lot of very related and in our society, conflicted areas. Yeah. Law enforcement plus faith, plus right. being an African-American man who's right. seeing both ends of it. Your folks have the talk with you when you were um, when you were young, your mom or dad tell you, listen, you, you engage the cops, here's what you need to be doing. They, they, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, so they always taught us to be respectful. And so I kind of knew that intuitively. We didn't have the big talk um, because a lot of times, most of our time was spent in youth group activities and, and those kinds of things. And so, and there was, I think there was a different relationship with the law enforcement community that I was dealing with in Seattle at the time. Uh, we had a Seattle police officer who lived down the street from us, and so we had a connection with him. And so we didn't have the kind of the, the tension in the relationship that you see 
these days. And so I, I was really fortunate. You know. I was say, you're, you're describing the relationship, and I've worked in six states. Every police department I've ever talked to and dealt with wants that relationship. Yes. They want what you've just described. Why can't we get it? Yeah. Well, I, I think part of it is, you know, politically we polarize. And then a lot of times what happens when we polarize, we're not listening to each other. You know, we're not sitting down at the table and really trying to understand where the other person's coming from. Um, you know, and then there's, you know, there's, there's people in the community who keep things inflamed. And I think really what, what it takes is we've got to slow down and we've got to enter into each other's world. And maybe get the nuts out of the conversation on both sides, on yeah. all sides. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Martin Luther King said there can be no healing without, with, without accountability. Right. Um, when you look at George Floyd and here in Tacoma, you look at Manny Ellis, have we had that accountability yet? Is it time to move toward reconciliation or do we still need to be on the accountability piece? Can they exist together? Um, give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, I really think, <clears throat> I really think they go hand in hand because, you know, if you're going to have accountability, um, there has to be a level of trust and trust comes through relationship building. And so if, if, you know, if a, a group of citizens wants to hold the police accountable and the police don't trust that they're going to be fair, then the police are going to resist that. I mean, there's a, there's a police culture oh, yeah. that uh, looks at the community and at times doesn't trust the community to look out for their best interests. And, and we've seen that in recent years with a lot of defund the police movement and those kinds of things. And, and the police feel uh, offended because they're putting their own personal safety on the line every day and then they're taking all these hits from the community. And in reality, they're not taking it from the whole community, they're taking it from a segment of the community that's very vocal and maybe has an agenda rather than being willing to come and sit down at the table and understand what police are dealing with. And that's one of the things I have found historically too, that it's very easy to pick out the outliers or the people who are the big voices. But when you right. go into the community and talk to folks, they want law enforcement. Right. They want the help. Right. They want the support. Right. They want their kids growing up on safe streets. They're the ones who want it almost more than the, you know, the gentrified white folks out in the suburbs. Yeah. They rely on that. You don't hear that much. Right. Right. It, it, it doesn't get a lot of press. And, you know, and I think on the flip side of that, the, the police department has to be more proactive in relationship building with the community, especially minority communities where there's maybe a higher degree of distrust. It's kind of like, how can we find our way in the community? And a little less us versus them maybe. Yes. And a little less of the thin blue line mentality and a little less of the militaristic approach. Right. How do those play in? Yeah, those, those, those play in pretty significantly. I mean, having been a police officer. Right, see I can hit you on all this. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I know the public face of the law enforcement community, what we say in public and, and what the public expects to hear out of us, and all of that is good. And, and let me be quick to say that the majority of our law enforcement community are really sincere, yeah. hardworking, dedicated people. But there's also a culture in the police world that needs to be modified. 
because I know that there's a public face. We're, we're here to serve the community and that's all true. But there's also a locker room face. Yeah. There's a locker room narrative that goes on that <clears throat> needs to be checked. Yeah. Where, <clears throat> where those individuals within the law enforcement community who promote an us versus them mentality, that, that needs to be slowly worked out of the police department. My next question was, are we hiring the right people and recruiting the, from the right sources when it comes to police? Um, some folks might argue that we need to, the, the military to police pipeline needs to be curtailed a little bit. There are other people with other backgrounds that can be police officers too. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think it's an either or. I, I, you know, the, the people who are coming out of the military bring some valuable skills. Oh, sure. And, and, I, and I've met a number of police officers who have military backgrounds. They get it. I mean, they get the need to relationship build in the community. And there, there's some, some great police officers with military backgrounds. But I also think, like you were inferring, that there is a need to recruit uh, other people who maybe have softer skills you know, that are better in the people scale arena. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those, those two skill sets are pitted against each other rather than how do we cultivate a broader skill set in the law enforcement community so that we, we move into the community with the intention of being proactive relationship building. And there's cultures within cultures, and I've been exposed to this quite a bit in my work covering crimes and cops over the years. Um, you know, the SWAT team and the violent fugitive warrant team and the Scorpion team that was involved um, in another city, um, you know, interdiction team, they have a little bit of a subculture even within police culture. Right. Um, how do you deal with that? How do we address that? Is it something to be concerned about? Is that, just, is that how it is? Set me straight. <laughs> well, I, see, I really think within the police culture, okay, so let me just uh, maybe pull the curtain back a little bit. I, I think one of the things, and, th and this is a value in the police department that, I, that I, a lot of times I don't think people really pick up on. For example, I think the, the critical thing in those areas is supervision in the field. Is there adequate supervision in the field? for a supervisor to be on scene in those critical situations who has the skill set to de-escalate things as quickly as possible. And remind folks of the mission, the values. Exactly. And, yeah. I mean, yeah. because when I was a police sergeant, that was, that was one of my primary focuses. It was my job to minimize unnecessary use of force and to make sure that we were treating citizens with respect and dignity. So here you come with a racial reconciliation network bringing people together to talk about race. Why are we afraid to talk about race? It seems like, um, I, I think people are, are afraid of making mistakes. Yeah. And they're afraid of getting canceled. They're afraid of losing their jobs. They're right. afraid of pushback. Right. And being labeled fragile if right. they're white. Um, does this just, does this help or does this add up to a lot of not engaging? Where it's just like, hey man, we're good. We're not, we don't have to have this conversation. Right. Lonnie, you're, you're all good, I'll see you later. Well, it's easier not to have the conversation yeah. if you have fear about what, what the potential outcome is gonna be. And, and unfortunately, there are people who capitalize on keeping the race issue hot rather than trying to, okay, let, let, let's, 
let's turn down the volume on this. Mm -hmm. And let's really start engaging each other in a meaningful way. Right. I mean, and part of it means I really have to care about you yeah. as a person. And so it goes back to my own personal value system. Do I have a value system that honors other people and other cultures that are different than mine? So you have this conversation, and it sounds great, where you can straighten me out on some things, I can accept it, I can tell you there's no jeopardy there. Right. Here comes social media. Right. Helping or hurting? Hurting. Yeah, really hurting. I mean, because, you know, I mean, people get on social media and it's almost as if they feel like they're anonymous. Mm -hmm. And they will say things on social media to other people, about other people, not really thinking about the impact that it's going to have on that person, a group of people, or, the you know, somebody else who just happens to be scrolling through. And when you demonize people, it... It creates an environment where people feel like it's not safe to have a conversation. Right. If I feel like you're blaming me, yes, you're 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 um, punishing me. Right. Um, I'm I'm yeah. Again, I don't want to engage. Right. Yeah. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm out. You know. What's the benefit? You know, of of hopping on social media. And likewise, if I'm doing you people, <clears throat> right, you're not going to engage. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know. And so it it really it really takes. Uh, courage and and I would say love mm -hmm. to be willing to engage in this conversation in a way where really you know in what we're doing in the racial reconciliation we're bringing pastors and Christian leaders and business people together to have these kinds of conversations and we're really focused on staying away from the political left and the political yeah. right yeah be because in the political world the goal is to dominate the other side. It's a power, it's a power fight. And, and so there's, there's not this collaborative conversation going on where we're really problem solving and trying to get to root causes and understand how we can you know, improve the atmosphere in the community and how yeah. we can help people feel like they really belong to our community. So give me 30 seconds. <laughs> I'll give you longer than 30 seconds. <laughs> Who is my neighbor? You're talking about the love piece. You may yes. not be Christian. Yeah. Who is my neighbor? Everybody. Any, anybody in this community is my neighbor. And so it could be, I mean, you, you're white, I'm black. You know, historically, we could, we could have some animosity against one another. But from a biblical perspective, race doesn't matter in the sense of I don't get to pick and choose who, I, who I'm called to love. And we might have different <clears throat> political views, different cultural backgrounds, different views about this or that. It doesn't matter whether we agree or not. I'm still called to love you. And so when, when we start thinking from that vantage point, all of a sudden it's kind of like, okay, the question becomes, how do I love somebody who has a different perspective than I have? And a lot of that begins with listening and hearing people's stories and understanding where they came from. Right. And when I listen to your stories, like, ah, we've got some things in common. Yeah. Or no wonder he feels that way. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, attitude surveys, a lot of research on this. Um, for a lot of years in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the races felt like they were coming together. Now attitude research is showing the races feel and perceive that they are growing apart. And some of that research has come back questioning DEI, 
It's a hot potato because every, <laughs> you know, everybody's got a job is involved in DEI. Right. What are your thoughts about that, helping or hurting, or does the way it's presented matter? Um, talk a little bit about that. I think the way that it's presented it, it really matters because if you walk into a DEI training session and the trainers have an agenda to bash white males, uh, to make sure that white people feel guilty as they leave the room, then it's not, it doesn't bring everybody together. And what we're trying to do in, in contrast to that is to create an environment of grace where we acknowledge the history of the past and the injustices of the past, but not blame you personally for what happened in the past. You have the opportunity and I have the opportunity to say this is what we inherited as Americans, but, but it's our time, we're up to bat, to make steps forward, to help bridge the gap that's been there and to heal the wounds that have been there. Part of that, and one of the other things that's being looked at, is I feel like we are heading toward resegregation. You know, sports and the military and so many institutions in our country over the years have worked at integration. Um, I see a resegregation happening. Special events, special programs, special fraternities, special sororities, special classes. It seems like we're going the wrong direction when it when it comes. Do you perceive that at all? Is that a problem? And is that is that a symptom of a mistake we're making when it comes to having these dialogues and achieving reconciliation? Yeah, I I, I do perceive that, and it, and I think it is a problem. And you know, one of the reasons I'm focused on pastors is because over over our historical uh, journey here in America, the church. Has been segregated. It's the most segregated hour yes, in America. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> eleven so, on Sundays. So so you know <laughs> right. when George Floyd happened and I called together, invited a group of pastors to the table, white and black. <clears throat> one of the things we talked about is that we don't have a credible voice in the community about this race issue and how to unify, because we're segregated on Sunday morning, mm -hmm. and and fortunately. What I'm discovering in the broader church community is there really is a desire from pastors across the board, racially, denominationally, politically, to grow in unity. And so what we're working at doing is coming together so that we have something to say credible in the community. For those outside the church. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, because they're struggling with the same thing. I mean, we're, we're all struggling with the same thing. Right. You know, how do, how do we engage people who come from a different racial background, different cultural background, different perspective, and engage in a conversation and in relationship where we start thinking about each other's best interests? Martin Luther King also said, the arc of history bends toward justice. Mm. You ultimately optimistic? pessimistic? Do you think that we're going to go through a tough period here and come back together? Do you see us? What, what's, how do you, what's your read on this? What does reconciliation look like? Is it possible? I, I really do think it's possible. I, you know, I, and I think it goes back to looking at our value systems and encouraging each other to live according to those value systems. I mean, you know, I can say I love you and that, you know, uh, the lenses that I'm looking through tell me to be sensitive to you, to 
take the time to build a relationship with you, but then it, all this pressure starts hitting, you know, social media, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the political the, agendas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. political, there you go. Yeah. The political agendas and all that kind of stuff. And that starts pounding on you. And, and sometimes people get caught up in that and then they pull out of the positive engagement. Mm -hmm. And we've gotta be very intentional about positively engaging one another in not only in conversation, but I've got to start looking out for your best interests. For example, I have a, a pastor friend who's Latino, and you know he's concerned about Latino kids in school. Are they getting what they need? And but those are not just his Latino kids. Those are my Latino kids too. Those are right. your Latino kids too. Right. And when we start thinking more inclusively about loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, then all of a sudden the defenses start to come down and we can engage each other in a positive way. Last minute here, 60 seconds. What do you need? What do you want out of folks? How can people help you? How, wh what do you want to see? What, what do you need from folks? I, you know, I want to encourage people to to think about what their value system is and to take the opportunity, look for opportunities to build relationships with somebody who doesn't look like you. I mean, from a Christian perspective, I call people to remember that we're called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That, that's the big thing. And in terms of, in terms of helping this kind of, of effort, uh, there's people all around you in your neighborhood reach out and touch somebody positively, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's in the neighborhood. And a lot of good community organizations here in Tacoma and the South Sound too, specifically. I know we're on the air in Western Washington, but, but here in Tacoma, there's a lot of great resources. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Lonnie, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. Great conversation. And uh, I think it gives a lot of folks to think about what reconciliation is, what it looks like, and uh, where we need to be heading. Thank you for having me. You bet. It is sometimes frustrating that programs can't deliver the answer. We all want the answer. The bottom line, reconciliation is the closest we're gonna get to the answer, where all groups celebrate differences and realize that this country's highest ideal is overcoming racial, economic, and religious resentments to form a more perfect union. 